0: Indeed, may the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. What a hope and prayer we have through Christ, who is going through the nations and gathering a church, a people to himself. Let's read Second Samuel 12, seeing again how the Lord uses his word to gather, protect, and preserve a church for himself, chosen for everlasting life. 2nd Samuel 12 chapter 11 God is not found almost except in the last half of the last verse it's all about David getting lost in his sin what a mess what an embarrassing shameful mess we can make Not just David. But the last line of chapter 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. And now we see that more fully in chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 through 15a. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Oh, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you... Are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the... In the sight of the son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is God's word. May He bless us by it. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Second Samuel 11 is a story of runaway sin run away sin. Sin has run away with David and David has let sin run away with him. And sin is not just an action, a transgression against the Lord. It's also a power that can grip you and drag you away, James 1 says, not by force, but by your own evil desire. Sin grabs you by your own evil desires and you want to run with it. You want to jump on that wild horse for that wild ride. And you'll do things. I'll do things I did not think possible for me to do. That's how terrible a power sin is. That's why Jesus has given given us the full armor of God. Because we need so much protection against this power of sin. And that's why we must put on that armor with prayer every day. And that's what David was not doing. Remember, he had become complacent, relying on his own power and accomplishments He had not been putting on the armor of God. He flirted with sin. And sin then grabbed him with a vengeance. And he was lured by his own evil desires to do terrible things. It's a frightful scene. Remember that. It's like coming upon the scene of an accident on the highway. And there's blood and bodies everywhere. And glass shattered and pieces of metal and tire all over the place. And where do you start? How do you clean this up? That's what sin does. But if 2 Samuel 11 is a story of runaway sin, 2 Samuel 12 is a story of outrageous grace. Something that would make any Pharisee cringe. We see how God graciously deals with David. It's as the hymn writer Julia Johnston put it, grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. David the king needed this grace. We need this grace. And God gives this grace through the one that David was pointing to both by his successes and his failures, Jesus Christ. Let it be known, brothers and sisters, there is forgiveness for all our sin through the blood of his son. Grace that exceeds, that exceeds by far the worst you have done. God's grace we see first as a sincere grace then a severe grace and it's a simple grace. It's a sincere grace. You've got to love the first sentence of chapter 12 and the Lord sent Nathan to David. That word sent was used 12 times in chapter 11. All David sending. David sending for Bathsheba. David sending messengers. David sending... Uriah back home. And then David sending Uriah back again with a letter that he should be put in the front line and killed. And then David sending for Bathsheba once again. David sending, sending, sending. He's chasing after sin. And now God sends Nathan to David. He's chasing after the sinner. And brothers and sisters, thank God, that's where grace starts. Grace does not start with you, the sinner, pleading to him for forgiveness. Because if that's where it started, we would never get that far. We would just stay in our cover-ups. Grace starts the other way, God pursuing us. I think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Their sin and their shame and their hiding and they're covered with layers of Guilt, And they're not seeking after God, are they? But God pursues them. And shatters the cover and exposes them and calls them to repent. Grace. That's what this is. God sent Nathan. He is chasing after David. It's a sincere grace, not a cheap grace that overlooks sin or underestimates and says, hey, Dave, that's no big deal. That's just the way people are. I know you guys. No, no. It's not cheap grace. It's not like sin doesn't matter to God. He hates it with a passion and puts all his wrath and vengeance on sin so much that it cost The death of his son and the hellish agony of the cross to pay for it. Sin is expensive. It is so hideous to God, it's so hateful to him. His grace is sincere. He he goes after your sin and confronts you and me with it because it matters so much. Now David apparently had been successful at his sin. He stole a man's wife. He murdered the husband, Uriah, to cover his sin. And he put three layers of wrapping around that. first he tried to have her Uriah come home from his military duty and spend some time with his wife to make, look, make it look like Uriah was the father of the child that David had conceived. Where David had fathered. And then when Uriah wouldn't do that, he tried a second thing, remember to try to make him drunk so that he would spend time with his wife? Uriah wouldn't. And then a third layer of sin, sending Uriah back with a letter. Oh, how he exploited Uriah's integrity. A sealed letter? Uriah didn't know what was in it. He wasn't going to check it out. To give to Joab that Uriah be put in the front line so that he would be killed. Front line of battle so that he'd be killed. And David is successful. It all works. And he takes Bathsheba to his house. Marries her. Everything's good. Everything looks right. David succeeds, but the thing David did displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. What if the Lord abandoned us when we succeeded at sin? Hey, what if the Lord abandoned us when we succeeded at sin? He could, he could leave them in their filth. But in his covenant love, he doesn't. In his commitment to his children to hold on to us and to pull us back from the brink when we're falling away, he comes after us. He sends his word to you. He sends his Nathan, his messengers to you, to confront you. He sends a friend, a pastor, an elder. That's grace. That's God not abandoning you. What are you doing with his word when he's confronting you in your backsliding? Are you shoving it off? Are you making excuses? Are you trying to outwit the person, outsmart the person and pretend that it's not real? So that you can go over the edge and fall headlong into your own destruction? Are you going to listen to the grace of the Lord who loves you as his child and is calling you back? And you're going to cooperate, may we say, with his rescue mission. Are you going to receive his rescue mission? Now, Nathan's message from the Lord is an amazing sermon. It's a parable about two men, though David thinks this is real. A rich man and a poor man. Oh, the rich man had many sheep, many flocks and herds. Nothing wrong with that. The poor man had just one. One little ewe lamb called Lammy. We'll just give him that name, Lammy. A household pet, almost like a daughter to him. It ate at his table. He fed it with a sippy cup. The kids got their turn to. Can I feed Lammy with the sippy cup? What what a treasure in their home. Just a darling. Such a sweet thing this is. And one day a traveler comes to the house of the rich man. Oh, what are we going to feed him? The rich man's not willing to give up one of his sheep for the meal or one of his goats. So he goes over to the poor man. He grabs Lammy from her, his master, her master's arms and takes her home and kills her. and barbecues her and puts sauce on her. And they all get to eat lamby, how nice. Oh David, the shepherd of Israel, the one in, in whom the spirit of the Lord Jesus still lives, though hidden, grieved, pushed aside, sense of justice and mercy that lives in him. He thinks this is real, this is happening in my country. How can I in God's name let this go? And he's, he boils over. This man deserves to die. But first he's got to pay fourfold. He's got to do justice. And he's showing no pity. And he's condemning himself out of his own mouth because what has he just neglected? Justice and mercy. Living against the Christ. Insulting the Christ. Defiling Messiah's throne. See, Nathan, filled with the Spirit, is wise. He knows that we're so much better at seeing the sins of others than our own. So I'm going to tell you a story about the sins of somebody else so that you can see your own. Now, God doesn't always use stories like this. When Jesus approaches Paul, it's, you're persecuted. It's straightforward. There's no parable there. But he gets to choose the way he wants to present. But in this case... David steps right into the trap of God's word. And Nathan says, you are that man. That's right, the holy word of God is a trap. It's a holy trap that catches people in their sins. So they don't continue in them to their death. In order to release you again in a better place. It's a trap that confronts us to keep us from going further, deeper, all the way to death. That's God's sincere grace. You are the man who deserves to die. I rescued you from Saul. I anointed you king. I gave you Saul's house and wives. I made you king over Israel and over Judah. And if you needed more, I would have given you more. You weren't satisfied with me and my gifts and my goodness. You despised the word of the Lord. You did evil in his sight. You murdered a man. You took his wife. And brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of God. The good news always starts with the bad news. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. It starts with the bad news. In order to lead us out of our wickedness and cover-ups and bring us to Jesus... For washing and for renewal. And only a fool despises a word of rebuke. A message from Nathan. From a friend who says don't. Don't. Continue in your excuses and cover-ups and reasons. Jeremiah compares the word of God to a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. It's meant to rescue us. It's God saying, turn from your evil ways. I take no pleasure in your death. Turn that you may live. And so I ask you today, what are you doing with the word of God? His sincere grace. That's confronting your sin and your trespasses. And the wickedness in your heart and life. Are you just going on and on and taking God's grace in vain? Will you hear and will you see that he's loving you? Oh, you might not like that, Nathan, that he sends you, but God is loving you. God is loving you. God's grace, secondly, is a severe grace. Now, therefore, he says after confronting him. And he's going to say, there's consequences to this. Verse 10. Now, therefore. Look at verses 10 through 12. The sword shall never depart from your house. Because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife thus says the Lord behold I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun and this will happen in the next several chapters lifelong consequences for David it's not always that way it can be short term consequences can be longer can be lifelong Sin comes with consequences. But brothers and sisters, that does not mean that God has not forgiven you. We'll see that. That doesn't mean that God has not completely forgiven you when you repent and turn to him for grace. To pardon you and renew you and reaffirm his love for you as his child. He does completely forgive. And he will never hold it against you. And the child you have conceived will die soon after he's born. Consequences of our sins. Brothers and sisters, we all live with them to some degree. It could be something as small as not being a diligent student. You waste that time. You sleep in class. You don't study for your exams. Then that spot of what you could have learned is missing from your life. And one of the consequences is that it's missing from your life. And you may regain it somewhere later along the way. You might never regain it. But it's a small consequence. Even though when you confess that sin of not being a diligent student. Wasting the opportunity to learn. God will forgive you. Or you decide that to have an identity and be more beautiful. That You just blotch. your ink your body with all kinds of blotches. And God may forgive you for that. He will forgive you if you ask him. But That won't necessarily take the blotches away, will it? But often the consequences are much larger, like in David's life. Consequences. And maybe you experience consequence in your life for your sin. I think we all do in some way. You might see it in your own life, your own marriage, your own family, your own workplace, your own character, your own memories, your own hurts. But brothers and sisters, do not receive consequences for your sin as a punishment. Jesus took the punishment. Don't receive consequences as God not fully accepting you in Christ's death on the cross for your sin. He has fully accepted you. Don't receive consequences as God giving you only a partial forgiveness. He's forgiven you fully. I think often about the parable of the prodigal son this way. He comes back home to Jesus after nearly destroying his life in wild living and in drunkenness and all kinds of relationships that have been made and then broken. And then the father gives him a full forgiveness and a full status as a son and a full privilege as a child of God as a member of the kingdom of heaven. But that doesn't mean there are no painful memories left and no consequences from that previous life. We're not told about that. But that is part of the picture, isn't it? But the forgiveness is still full and real. And that's how we have to understand this as well God's forgiveness is immediate, it's complete, and it's forever. But take consequences as a severe grace, meant to remind you of your weakness, meant to humble you as somebody who got to where you're at by grace, not by your own goodness and strength. I think of Paul often remembering with sorrow the life that he had lived before being converted as a blasphemer of God and a killer of Christians. And he often remembers that and talks about it, but here's how he talks about it, 1 Timothy 1. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent of Christ, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. It just reminds me that I'm a trophy of grace. He uses consequences to humble us. He uses consequences to remind us just how much we need the Lord. To remind us that we're still weak and we got to be careful. He uses consequences to strengthen us. He uses them even for our good. You've seen that in your life, I'm sure. Dale Davis in his commentary gives the following illustration of God's severe grace. True story, in 1911, two hikers in northern Scotland... Hiking through the hills and a terrible storm, winter storm, comes upon them. And they can't see anything. They don't know where they're going. And they stumble their way down one of the mountains, one of the hills. And they find a hut there at the bottom. And they take refuge inside. But after two days, their food is gone. They're worried about what's going to happen. They've got to keep going. So they leave. They dig their way out of the hut. And they keep trudging through the winter storm, which is still going on. And they're becoming exhausted. And finally, one of the two guys says, I gotta lay down for a nap. I can't take anymore. I need to sleep. He says, No. If we sleep, we die. We'll not wake up again. We gotta keep going. No, I'm too tired. And he lays down and he goes down to nap. And the other guy, with his iron boot, kicks him in the face. And he's so mad. And he gets up. It's a severe grace. He's trying to rescue his friend. And so they keep going. And they find a village and they are rescued. Well, God leaves scars. Lest we forget. To remind us of our weakness and his grace. And to make us alert to his mercies as well. How far we have fallen, how far he's raised us up. So let's not think of consequences as punishments or as God's partial forgiveness. Of God still being half displeased. But of our father who loves us and has his great and glorious purposes for the consequences of our sins. But thirdly, God's grace is still simply grace. Whatever purpose he might have, whatever hidden and mysterious things he's doing behind the scenes and we don't know yet what it is, still, in spite of all the complications in God's plan, his grace is very simple. When you confess your sins, he forgives you. David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord has put away your sin you shall not die it's really such a glorious statement when we confess our sins he forgives us immediately, unreservedly, completely, and eternally. Notice David's confession. I have sinned against the Lord. Not a long story with explanations. Well, I was under a lot of... I, this was bad, Lord. But I was under a lot of stress, you know, that I had just fe- fought a, a war with the Syrians and the Ammonites and... And she was beautiful, and you know how men are. And uh, um, no, no. We have so many attempted evasions through excuses and entitlements and explanations, and they are all rotten to the core. I've sinned against the Lord. A straight confession, a simple confession, a sincere confession, and a spiritual one. It's finally against the Lord. How I've destroyed Bathsheba's family, destroyed Uriah's life, destroyed my witness in Israel. But I've defiled Messiah's throne. I've sinned against the Lord. And he says that again in Psalm 51, right? I, against you, you only have I sinned. And, Done what is, he puts it in the sight of the Lord, and suddenly that makes it a billion times worse. Brothers and sisters, when we confess our sins, God forgives us immediately, unreservedly, completely, and eternally. What does that mean? When We repent and confess our sins to the Lord from the heart. God puts them away. Listen to Psalm 32, which we'll sing in a moment. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, when I did not cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Then you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There we have it again. Simple. And to put away means to cross over it, to step over it. It's one of the only times God uses this word for forgiveness. I will step over it. I will get it behind me. I will put it out of my sight. And also the displeasure I have toward you, David, I also put that out of my sight. It's gone. I renew my love for you. The sin you've committed cannot make me love you any less. But why does God forgive? Is because David did such a good job of repenting? No. Was it even because his confession was so sincere? No. Even when we do the best job of repenting possible, it's never perfect. The Bible tells us why, Psalm 51, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, forgive me. And Paul says in in Romans 4 that David was forgiven because of Christ's blood. David is a type of the Messiah and an ancestor of the Messiah knows that that blood that Jesus will shed for him is what is needed for his forgiveness, for his atonement. And though he can't see it clearly, we can't see that clearly until we get to the New Testament, he knows that God will send his son and put all David's sin on him and all God's wrath for David on Jesus Christ so that he can take away David's sin from him and take away his displeasure from David. It's simply grace. When you confess from the heart, when you confess simply, he simply forgives. Because all that is needed for forgiveness has been accomplished for us through Christ. Nailed to the cross so we bear them no more. Here's a call again, brothers and sisters, not to cover up our sin, not to run away from them, except to run from them to Jesus Christ. David needed a savior, and so do we. And here Israel learns, and we learn, That while David's a type of Christ, sitting on the throne of Christ, David is not the Christ. Jesus is. Let's trust in him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you for a forgiveness that is immediate, that's unreserved, that's complete and eternal. Thank you for that grace that is far greater than all our sin, an infinite matchless grace. And in that good news, Lord, we can go on our way, rejoicing, serving the Lord with gladness, knowing that you have put it behind you, we can put it behind us as well. Even though we often continue with the pains of it, we know that our relationship with the Lord is secure. Thank you for this good news. Bless us by it in Jesus' name. Amen.